to Totalus Rankium. This week, Calvin Coolidge, part one. Welcome to American President Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. And I am Rob, ranking all of the presidents from Washington to Trump. And this is episode 30.1. Calvin Coolidge. Ooh. That's right, two thirds of the way there, Jamie. Two thirds. Yeah, oh, yeah. Milestone. An unusual milestone, yeah. but still a milestone. Well, we've all already had a little chat about who we're doing, kind of off air. Um, but it's yeah. Coolidge, Jamie. You're looking forward to Coolidge? Uh, more curious now. <laughs> yeah. With your cryptic suggestion. Well, not even suggesting anything. No, no. See, I've completely forgotten that people said that you particular would like Coolidge, and I'll be interested to see whether you do. Is there another Jerry? Uh, Jerry does not appear in this episode, I will have to warn you. Shall we just start, and then you can find out more about this Coolidge fellow, and uh, see, see what you think. Yeah. You're going to have to sell mm. me off, though. Yes, uh, let's... What represents me? Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's keep it simple. Shiny brass. Brilliant. Perfect. Start on shiny brass. We're not doing Harding this week, so nothing can be insinuated. <laughs> I'll have to focus. Lots of... Um, you know when sort of light has kind of gone all sort of hexagony in a, in a camera? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of... Is it a box effect? Oh. Uh, lots of brassy hexagons, octagons, whichever they are on your screen. Lots of twinkly lights. And, uh, yeah, you pull into focus and there's a big brass chandelier just hanging there as as music wafts towards you from the, the screen you're watching from. Brass chandelier? That's pretty cheap, i got to say. Yeah, everything in this place is unfortunately a little bit cheaper than it should be. Oh, they're, they're trying to impress, but they've fallen on hard times of the hosts. Oh. So they've had to pull out the brass chandelier from <laughs> from the shed and they put it up. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it is a shame. It's half a dead rat on one of the spokes. Yeah, if you listen carefully, it sounds like fancy music. And if you don't focus too hard, it really does sound like you're at an upmarket social gathering. But if you listen carefully, it is, it is actually just someone playing the spoons really, really well, which makes it sound oh. like classical music being played. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> the swell from the violins. Oh, yeah. No, it's all in the wrist action. It's a seriously good spoon player, but uh, ultimately <laughs> cheaper from hiring the orchestra to play in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> as the spoons clack out some Vivaldi summer, <laughs> you uh, you pan down and everyone's sitting around uh, at a dinner party. All the best and the brightest and the uh, the upper crust of Washington. All of them are are conspicuously not in this room. Uh, <laughs> however, if you ever wanted to go to a party full of B-listers, this is your place. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, like undersecretary to the Department of Interior, that kind of thing. Ooh. Yeah. Third in line to be the uh, the war secretary. People have heard a nod and a wink, so that's why he's here. And yeah, obviously, okay. guest of honour, the vice president. <laughs> anyway, you see a woman in very fancy clothes. Oh, hello, my dear. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, you look closely, it's, it is just newspaper. Uh, but it's, again, done very, very well. Anyway, she, she sits down to a very severe-looking man and turns to him and says, You must talk to me, Mr Coolidge. I made a bet today that I could get more than two words out of you. There's a pause... And Coolidge turns to the woman and says one simple statement. You lose. Oh. 
Nice. Smash to the words, Coolidge. And then they all turn to icicles and then they shatter. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Coolidge. Yeah, get it? Uh, put, put on the name. And there you go. That is the opening to Coolidge. I'd have gone for the whole, you know, the glasses with like the, the lines that go across that aren't really glasses. Oh, yeah, no, he, he always. And a backwards cap. Coolidge definitely wore those plasticky visory things. I'm sure they have names. There we go. We begin the exciting life of Calvin Coolidge. I, I, I can't help but sense a certain level of uh, sarcasm in your tone there, Robert. Oh, well, I'm warning you and anyone listening, uh, if you get overexcited easily, you might want to listen to this one in small chunks. <laughs> because, whew, I can tell you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Well, Calvin Coolidge uh, earns the nickname Silent Cal, and he earns the nickname Silent Cal for a very good reason. He's silent. Oh, yes, from all accounts, he was a very quiet man. He spoke little, he joked less. Uh, some have claimed that his silence hid a keen sense of humour and a love for practical jokes. Hmm. I can't say I'm convinced. There was one biography that I read a fair amount of that kept telling me how much he loved practical jokes. Never once did it tell me about a practical joke. <laughs> Apart from one that is yeah. fairly likely someone else did. Uh, however, somewhat ironically, his quiet demeanour has uh, actually left us with a large number of small humorous anecdotes, all revolving mm. around how robotic Coolidge is. We perhaps have more tiny little anecdotes for Coolidge than any president we've come across, bizarrely, just because okay. he is such a boring man. So, I mean, this is a good job. It means I can sprinkle some of these anecdotes into the episode to stop it drying up completely. However, <laughs> uh, just know, and for reasons we'll get into towards the end of the episode, some of these stories are most likely not true, were made up right. at the time and have kind of filtered through history. Right. But what is interesting is if they're not completely true, they were believed at the time. So it does give us a hint of what his personality must have been like. Right. So, that said, we don't actually start with Calvin, but with his parents. The Coolidge family lived in Vermont, the most exciting of states. I apologise to all our Vermontians. The letters we're going to get now, you said that. <laughs> it's going to be unreal. It'll be all very polite. Vermont's practically Canada, isn't it? So well, it'll yeah, all be very polite. Actually, it'll be fine. It's like Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we're, we're talking cold winters, harsh living conditions in the rural northern America. For four generations, the Coolidges had lived in the town of Plymouth Notch. <laughs> yeah. This is a tiny little sort of village or a notch uh, in, in a valley near the slightly bigger town of Plymouth, but not the Plymouth you might be thinking of. It's more inland. They pronounce it Plymouth. Do Americans pronounce it Plymouth? Uh, oh, they say Plymouth Rock, don't they? So I guess. So. Yeah, maybe they pronounce it Not Plymouth. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. No, I think it is Plymouth. <laughs> Pronunciations of things are almost normal in New England. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's the further south and further west you get, the crazier the yeah. accent goes. If they say aluminium and everything. Yeah. And herbs. <laughs> Exactly. So anyway, we've got John Calvin Coolidge and Victoria Moore, who had met shortly after the Civil War, and wed. Aww. Yeah, short story of their courtship. John <laughs> and Victoria ran a farm, but John also did all sorts to get an income. Uh, jack of all trades, he was. In fact, uh, when their children first come along, he is running the local store and using that to supplement the income from their small farm. <laughs> but... Uh, he didn't just do that. He also undertook the position of just about every local official you could think of. He was a school commissioner at one point, a tax collector, a constable, a deputy 
Scots sheriff. Uh, eventually, he'd go on further in politics, uh, reaching the heights of being a state senator. Uh, wow. But that's that's all in the future. For now, just know know that he's doing what he can to get by. Yeah, we're, we're not talking rich aristocratic family here. Yeah. Anyway, John and Victoria, very patriotic couple, obviously. They love their country. So, what better day to have a child? Then on Independence Day. Oh. Oh, yes, of 1872. Wait, conceived or produced? Both. They were in a rush. Wow. Or took their time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, born. 1872. John and Victoria have a little boy, and they name him after his father, John Calvin Coolidge. So his first name's John. Oh, yes, to avoid the confusion, the boy was referred to by his middle name, Calvin, throughout pretty much all his life. Fair enough. Yes. So, Calvin Coolidge is added on to the growing list of presidents whose names aren't actually the names you know them by. Mm. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I've gone blank. Ulysses. There we go. Yes. Grant Grant wasn't actually called Ulysses. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's definitely been more. George Washington. Yeah, his name was actually King George. Yes. They covered that one up well. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, little boy, born on Independence Day. Uh, as an adult, Calvin would look back and uh, fully appreciate how his parents raised him. He'd look back fondly on his childhood. His, mo- his mother loved to plant things and watch the sky, the sunsets and the stars, whilst talking to her son of poetry and novels and the such like. Uh, the arts... Appreciating the beauty in the world. Uh, that's a good thing in a way, but, you know, <laughs> there's no, no Wi-Fi back then, I guess. <laughs> well, maybe you would have uh, preferred John's method of parenthood, where he he was far more practical. Uh, yeah, this is how you get by in life, son, kind of thing. In fact, I'll quote Coolidge here about his father. He was a man of untiring industry, so he'd just keep on working. Yeah. As a boy, Calvin helped on the farm. He, he swept up for the local blacksmith to get a little bit of pocket money, uh, and he also became very good at getting the sap out of the maple trees. See, you're right, they were in Canada. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'll quote uh, John Calvin here. It always seemed as though Cal could get more sap out of a maple tree than any other boy. Words of a proud father. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Interestingly, though, it just goes to show how many things in the world happen that you never stop to think about. It's only doing my research for this podcast that it occurred to me that maple syrup actually comes from maple trees. Really? Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. (laughs) There was nothing in there when I looked into it that surprised me or shocked me. I just never stopped to think about it before. (gasps) So, yeah, there he was, going up to the maple trees, shoving in one of the the taps, just turning the faucet, little bottle, maple syrup. Job done. At the age of four, Calvin gains his first memory, or at least it's his earliest memory when he's an adult. It was his birthday slash Independence Day, and uh, he and his father went fishing. How nice. The reason why Calvin remembers this so well is that he fell in the river and his dad had to jump in after him and rescue him and then they had to trudge home dripping wet. I bet he looks back on it and laughs and goes, "Ah, how silly I was. This is Coolidge. I doubt he left. He probably probably raised half an eyebrow and then made a note somewhere (laughs) to smile at the next available convenient time. Oh dear. It's not boding well. (laughs) <laughs> oh, just wait. Anyway, uh, four years later, we get another anecdote. One day, at around aged eight, 
And this is the first one where we perhaps get a, a, an insight of what his personality is like. Cal asked his father for a penny to buy some sweets. John told his child that it looked like a Democrat was about to become the president, so they had best economise, and just refused to hand the penny over. However, this was the election that um, Garfield won, Republican yeah. Garfield. And I'll quote Coolidge here. As soon as the news reached our town, I went to my father and I told him the result indicated that we were to continue with a Republican administration. And with that prospect in view, I was able to secure the advance of the sum I had asked for. <laughs> what a logical, soulless way to describe, <laughs> yeah, I got my penny off my dad eventually. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, was, was this brutal to research? No, actually, this was a really simple one to research. Uh, it's It wasn't like uh, McKinley's episode where yeah. it's like he doesn't do anything and this is painful to research. This one was fairly straightforward. It's just, well, as you'll see, it's, you come to almost admire it in a way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Coolidge would later remember his childhood with fondness. Uh, apparently it was a world full of country fairs and bobsleighing and and just generally helping out on the family farm and sitting under the night sky with his mother chatting. Aww. All very nice. His mother, whilst looking at the stars, would occasionally cough a little bit. Oh, no. In, into a handkerchief that she'd then stare into with, with horror in her eyes <laughs> and then and hide. Coolidge would say, what's wrong, mother? And she'd say something along the lines of, nothing, nothing, dear. Yeah, it's it's TB, Jamie. It's consumption. It's... Aww. uh. It's not good. Growing up uh, with his mother being ill was just part of life to Coolidge. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll quote him. She was practically an invalid ever after I could remember her, but she used what strength she had in lavishing care upon me and my sister. Because, Aww. yes, he now has a little sister as well, called Abby. TV couldn't have been that bad then, could it? <laughs> uh, in fact, I'll continue the quote. When mother knew the end was near, she called us children to her bedside to receive her final parting blessing. We laid her away in the blistering snows of March. The greatest grief that can come to a boy came to me. Life was never to seem the same again. Oh, maybe this is why he shelled up and became frosty. Quite possibly. I, I, I've read in more than one place during my research this is a... Uh, uh, a suggestion a few historians come to loss of his mother early age taught him to be cautious life was precious could be snatched away at any moment mm. a sort of Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton not real life kind of attitude to life if you've seen <laughs> the musical which you haven't Nope. The listeners have. All of the listeners have. <laughs> it's just you. Interestingly though uh, guess how she dies? Hassack. I can't tell. I could not figure it out. And I spent quite a while trying to work this out. I mean, you'd guess, wouldn't you, that it was TB? Yeah. In most places online, it says it's TB. In his autobiography, which I've just quoted from, uh, Coolidge doesn't actually mention how his mother dies, just that she dies. Mm. Uh, in Ruth Fieldman's biography, it insinuates that she died of tuberculosis, but doesn't say so outright, but it's fairly clear that that's what she died of. It's mentioned she had it and then she died. Yeah. However, in the biography by David Greenberg, he just casually throws in the line that she died after an accident involving a runaway horse. What? Yeah. 
Now, obviously, with a line like that, I want to know more information. Yeah. What runaway horse? Was she there in her bed dying of TB as a horse just ran <laughs> through and clattered into her? I don't yeah. know. So I thought I'd find out. Could not find out. Oh. After, well, they after... live on a farm, don't they? So it's they not do. beyond so, the realm of possibility. Yeah. I mean, if if you're listening and you know, please let me know. I, I looked into Coolidge's autobiography, into his wife's autobiography. Uh, I read mm. the relevant chapters of four separate biographies. Uh, and no, it was either just very unclear, said it was TB, apart from the one that mentioned a runaway horse. So, Well, I think we need to make the assumption now that it was the horse. I'm going to assume that there's been a big mix-up and there was a horse on their farm called Tony, Tony Barnes, and they just called it TB. And oh. the horse clattered into her one yeah. day. And yeah. It's like, oh, she's died of TB. Yeah. Yeah. And, think... and when, when he was a foal, yeah. you know, years prior, uh, thunderstorm, little, little, what do you call it, Todd, Todd Barnes. Uh, Tony Barnes. But Tony yeah. Barnes jumped into her arms and said, oh, you've just caught TB. <laughs> yes, that, that happened. That yeah. happened. Oh. oh, ooh, Tony Barnes, oh. you, you, you naughty horse, you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, either way, whether it's tuberculosis, stray horse called Tony, uh, she's dead. Yeah, oh. and this left John with his two children, Calvin and Abby. Uh, Calvin was already a shy boy, apparently, and it, like you say, this is a uh, speculated that this death really causes him to be even more awkward around people. Yeah. Now, by this time, he's in school. Uh, the village had a small stone building as the school that all the children would go to. Uh, Coolidge would later say that his teachers were not very good. Ooh, Mr. Ofsted. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. He was seen as a, an above-average student, if somewhat of an, and I quote, odd stick. Oh, that's great. Bit quirky, yeah. bit weird. Yeah, bit bit weird. Apparently, he's he's, he's just sort of really shy, awkward with his like freckles and his red hair, and he wouldn't talk to anyone. Now there is some evidence that his father started pushing Calvin a little bit, a little bit, a lot. In fact, after the death of his wife, uh, because by this time John was the school commissioner for the area, oh. and for. Whatever reason, he made his son take the test that teachers were given to see if they were allowed to teach, which 13-year-old Calvin passed. Oh, well, I guess the information is, like, kiddie-level stuff, though, right? Well, yeah, exactly. I, I think I think this is John trying to prove that his boy is actually very intelligent. I can tell you. Lockie can pass the test that I've prepped him for. Tree, yeah. car, fridge... Yeah, exactly. Cool. Anyway, soon after this, it's off to Ludlow, uh, which is 12 miles away, to enrol in a boarding school. Calvin struggled. Now, he could do what he'd been taught well enough, but there were some areas that he'd never really been taught very much, uh, especially algebra. He did not like algebra. He did not have a mathematical brain. Who does? Exactly. Uh, he'd not been prepared. He struggled. He made very few friends if any, in the boarding school, and later talked about how he found it impossible to talk to strangers at the time. So he, he, yeah, he mentioned walking past his kitchen at home if there was a stranger in there, and he realised he'd have to go in and introduce himself. He found it the hardest thing in the world to go into the kitchen. Oh. He's just, yeah, painfully, painfully shy. 
Uh, he would head home every weekend from the boarding school to see his father uh, and help out at home, which is nice. And then after studying for a few years, he improved his grades. He kept chipping away at those areas he didn't like and started to thrive in the areas that he did. So doing better in his education, he still preferred his own company. However, he had changed because he had started the school as the freckly little redhead. He was now the impeccably dressed in a derby hat and a fancy coat kind of dandy figure. Ooh. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's interesting, because normally if you have a sudden change of fashion, it's usually because you've, you're with a group of friends that do the same thing, right? Yeah, or he just thinks, how can I make friends? Well, people who oh. dress like this can are always popular, so maybe if I dress like this, I'll be popular. Well, that's really sad. It could be that, but this is the thing with Coolidge. Uh, he's, he's a blank slate. <laughs> you can kind of put whatever you want on him, because it's so hard to actually find out what he was thinking. So you're right, he might have been going, I don't care about anyone else, I'm going to dress the way I want and yeah. screw the lot of them. But he might have been desperately trying to get friends, and it's very oh. hard to tell which one's true. Now, he could afford his new look uh, because he had a job. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, the world's creepiest job. Uh. He worked in a toy factory making dolls. Oh, that's creepy. And, and we're talking, like, late 1800s here. So oh, the, these are porcelain, freaky, scary dolls, and he worked in the factory. And he always asked the night shift as well. Yeah, definitely. Personal theory of mine, this is why he is so cold. It's because to make those dolls, you do need to pour some of your soul into each and every one so they can come to life at night and kill people. So oh. that's probably why. That's sad. Yeah. Anyway, he worked there for a while. He made some money, which is nice. Uh, two years after starting at Black River, uh, his, his boarding school, his sister enrolled also. Remember, his sister's a couple of years younger than him, so yep. he, she's now around. Um, however, she wasn't there for long uh, because she died. Oh. Yeah, about that suddenly as well. She just suddenly got ill one week. She was dead the next. Oh. This... This hit Coolidge uh, about as hard as his mother's death had. Yeah. Yeah. The, the two Coolidge men were just left with just those two, with mother and daughter gone. Oh, that's really sad. It is really sad, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And again, historians have speculated that the death of his mother and sister are what led to his reserved attitude. However, as we have seen many times in this podcast, death was unfortunately common uh, back then and life goes on and after a while he got back to his studies it had taken a while um, but also people at his school had started to get to know him a little bit he became a little bit more popular not like That's really good. popular but a little bit he made friends he, well friends acquaintances he, he, <laughs> he made acquaintances uh, he may have been involved in a couple of pranks including one where a donkey was led into a classroom one night to cause mayhem that would be brilliant yeah. It's, so you've got to coax going, it in to start with. We're going way back to John Adams' level, kind the of. The cow. Yeah, the cow and the inkwell. Yeah, Coolidge makes reference to this prank in his autobiography, one of the very few times he admits to doing anything frivolous. Uh, <laughs> I'll quote him here. About as far as I deem it prudent to discuss my own connection with these escapades is to record that I was never convicted of any of them, so it must be presumed I was innocent. <laughs> That's nice. I was never caught, yeah. so therefore it didn't happen. Yeah, which does show a little bit of humour, a bit of dry wit. 
or, or literal. Or literal, and he genuinely <laughs> thinks. And this is it with Coolidge. He's either got a very, very dry sense of humour that he maintains throughout his whole life, including to his wife, or, <laughs> oh, or he, he genuinely is this robotic. So we yeah. can decide at the end. Anyway, in his studies, he'd found a love of Cicero. High five! Yeah, he high-fived himself. Um, who doesn't like love a bit of Cicero and his pun? Notifications. Uh, he studied Greek and Latin, politics and history, uh, mm-hmm. and found a real love for these subjects. Uh, and then he left school. It was time to go to further education and to college. So Amherst College was selected. He was going to go to a more local college, but Amherst was a bit more prestigious. However, it had an entrance exam, and college was nervous about going. What if he went and did the exam and failed? However, he was convinced he should give it a go, and off he went. He took the entrance exam and failed. Oh. Yeah. Now, in his defence, he was ill at the time, uh, or so it is claimed. Uh, And to be fair, even if it's nothing but the slight sniffles, his mother and sister have both died of illness slash rampaging horse. Uh, (laughs) So that meant that... Even getting slightly ill would be mentally taxing to the young man. Yeah. Uh, it, it didn't help that his uncle had just died of tuberculosis as well. Oh, a bloody horse. Bloody Tony Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> his dad shouted, falling to his knees. <laughs> he didn't pass as the upshot. Yeah. However, his father was uh, the school commissioner, remember? And this helped out. (laughs) Well, he he had a couple of connections, so he was able to get his son into the local college for just a term to do a bit of extra study. Mm. And then the president of that college was able to put in a good word for Coolidge with Amherst College. Yeah. So, yeah, a few favours were were asked for and received. Nice. Uh, And, yeah, this worked. Uh, After failing the entry exam to begin with, Coolidge, after a few months, is given a place in Amherst. And his time in Amherst was very similar to his time in his previous school. To begin with, he was the odd stick. He stuck to himself. He rarely talked to others. In fact, I'll quote one fellow pupil, he lacked small talk and was never known, I suspect, to slap another man on the back. He did develop a nickname, however. That's a good sign, isn't it? Um... (laughs) I'm probably mispronouncing this, uh, because it is a a Greek word. But his nickname was Uden. Uden. O-U-D-E-N. So into the gold? It it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a good name. Copper man, the gold man, that would yeah. be good. Yeah. No, it's the Greek word for nothing. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the most depressing nickname anyone could ever have. <laughs> you are nothing. That is brutal. Now, apparently this was because he wasn't part of any fraternity or social clubs, uh, but possibly it just was because he was an empty shell of a man. Who knows? Yeah, Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) But this said, over the next four years, uh, people got to know nothing a bit, and he (laughs) did manage to make a couple of friends. Good. Which is nice. Uh, And he graduated. I'd love to tell you more stories of his college life, uh, but there aren't any that I could find. Uh, he just got on with his work. I, I do feel kind of sorry for him. He's been through a lot. And, you know, social anxiety, social... Oh, yeah, yeah. Not having the social skills is, is, is challenging. It does make you wonder, though, how does it go from here to become the President of the United States? That's what I keep thinking. 
Yeah. Well, we're going to find out. So he's graduated. What's he going to do? Law. Of course. Uh, <laughs> he's not doing anything exciting or interesting. All his classmates were going to law school. College, however, decided to stay closer to home and read law the old-fashioned way, which was go to an actual law firm and then study in his spare time, okay. like we used to see back in the earlier days of yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So a local law firm called Hammond and Field were recruiting. Hammond and Field were ex Amherst students and Coolidge found himself with a position there soon enough. Nice. By day, he worked on legal documents. Hammond and Field specialised in, in one particular area of the law, which suited Coolidge quite well. Uh, do you want to hazard a guess at what area they specialised in? Something really dull. Yes, got it in one. <laughs> <laughs> they specialised in the mundane. Oh, uh, yeah. They, they, they basically they took the low key humdrum cases, uh, the background noise in the world of law, stuff that's just right. ticking over in the background. Never made a splash, but provided a steady income. Yeah, this was not a few good men style <laughs> lawyering. No. This was. Well, so, they've not made a film about it because why would you? <laughs> no. Uh, it's like there's there's a pothole on 23rd Avenue. Exactly. goes behind that, that sort of thing. Exactly. Oh. So, uh, yeah, uh, Coolidge, Coolidge spent his days measuring the potholes to see if he could find a legal loophole. Uh, and in the <laughs> evening... No, it's just a pothole, sir. <laughs> and in the evening, he would read law, studying. Uh, it took him two years. Uh, and he passed the bar at the age of 25. Impressive stuff. Yeah. A very good result. As Coolidge himself put it, I was 25 years old and very happy. <laughs> I was ecstatic. <laughs> A party was had. <laughs> I didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Three streets away. It was someone else's birthday. <laughs> Anyway, as it often was, however, of course, uh, the law was a means to an end. Hammond and Field, who he was working for, were far more interested in their political careers than their law firm. Uh, there was a reason why they just did the humdrum background law stuff. It's because they were focusing on furthering their political agendas. Mm. And Coolidge became part of the, uh, the political shenanigans going on. He, he was essentially part of the campaign team whenever one of the two owners of the firm ran for a political post. Right. And due to this, Coolidge started to meet various leading men in politics for the area. And he starts on the ladder himself. Ooh. And for the next couple of decades, he is steadily elected to more and more important positions. It just, just keeps going. It's, um, I won't do the whole list, but I'll give you the start just to give you a sense. Well, I mean, he goes from lawyer to president, so it's a, you know... It's a, it's a long ladder uh, with lots of boring positions on it, but Coolidge takes it one rung at a time and off he goes. So to begin with, in 1898, he was elected into the Northampton City Council. In 1900, he was elected as city solicitor, who was re-elected in 1901. In 1903, he got the position of clerk for the courts. In 1904, he became the chairman of Northampton's Republican City Committee. I could literally keep going like yeah. this until he hits vice president. Yeah, please don't. He's just... No, I'm not going to. <laughs> it is just steady. Next year rolls around, he goes for something else. The next year rolls around, he goes for something else. Wow. Yeah. So let's grab one of those interesting anecdotes that I told you about earlier that might not be true. And let's say it happened here. Couldn't quite figure out when in his life this happens, but it would be around this time, I think. Um, so one day he goes to the barber shop. He needs his hair cut. <laughs> uh, it continues, don't worry. Oh, good. 
So he goes in, uh, he sits down, he has his hair cut, and then in comes another man and sits down in the waiting area. There was only one seat, only one person could have a hair cut at a time. Was it Abraham uh, Lincoln? It was not Abraham Lincoln. It was his doctor. Small oh. town stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctor realises that his patient's there, and this is before the days of patient-doctor confidentiality, clearly, <laughs> uh, because the doctor says, Oh, Kel, did you take those pills I gave you? There was a pause. And then Calvin, while still having his hair cut, replied, Nope. <laughs> snip, 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 snip. Eventually, the doctor, feeling like he should perhaps give it another go, says, uh, Are you feeling better then, Cal? Snip, 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 snip. Yep. Snip, snip. <laughs> the doctor at this point gives up on conversation and just patiently waits his turn. The haircut then finishes and Coolidge stands up and just goes to leave and walk out the door. Uh, the barber had to stop him in a kind of polite, oh, excuse me, uh, and says, aren't, aren't you forgetting something, Mr Coolidge? Uh, Coolidge looked embarrassed, apologetic, and replied, Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to pay. I was so busy gossiping with the doctor, it slipped my mind. <laughs> you could just imagine a whole conversation going on in his head. And he's sort of, <laughs> he thought he's had it. It's... Yeah. See, it's stories like this, where it's like, no, surely not. There, there were so many little stories like this, where it's like, no, these were jokes about how boring a man could be, and they've been applied to Coolidge, surely. Yeah. But... Let's say that happened. Love it. Uh, during this time, Coolidge was staying in a boarding house, which happened to be next to a school for the hearing impaired. And one morning, while shaving, he heard laughter through his window. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hope it was uh, slightly nicer laughter than that. Because Coolidge <laughs> went, ooh, what nice laughter, and looked out of the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's plotting something. <laughs> What a strange group of people out there. Someone's just told a joke to a very diverse crowd. <laughs> uh, he looked out the window and discovered the source of the laughter was a young woman who was pleasing to the eye, shall we say. And in a rare flash of putting himself forward, Coolidge arranged to meet up with the woman. This was a woman named Grace Goodhue, who apparently was a very warm and friendly university graduate who uh, lacked any of the social awkwardness that Coolidge had. Oh. Yes. Uh, Grace was teaching in Northampton, uh, where Coolidge was living at, the, at this time. Uh, the reason why Grace was teaching in Northampton was because her mother thought that it was a woman's town, <laughs> right. where the the only men were already married. Go and teach there, you'll be safe there from all the horrible men. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as Grace states in her autobiography, my mother did not know that a student graduating from Anhurst College had crossed the river and taken up residence there. Oh yes. Coolidge plucked up the courage, invited Grace on a date. Ooh, that's oh, pretty yes. brave. The upcoming Republican rally at the City Hall. Oh, he was so close. He <laughs> was so close. <laughs> well, well, Grace accepted, and in, in her autobiography writes, I accepted and have been accepting similar invitations from him ever since that first acquaintance. And then all the crowd goes, ah, yeah. and then and then it, it just, just fades to black. Yeah. <laughs> How nice. How quaint. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, he's, he's, he's with Grace now. 
goes very well. I could find annoyingly little on their courtship. Uh, we just don't seem to know much. They get married soon afterwards, though, in Grace's home. Wow. Yes, it was a very small affair. Grace's mother was not very well. Maybe she'd come down shock the fact that her daughter managed to find a man in Northampton, which for some reason she was convinced was devoid of men. Um, anyway, yeah, it was, it was only close relatives, small affair. They get married and then they move to a small, simple house together. A, a two-family house, as semi-detached houses were apparently known back then in America. Oh, yeah, this this house, by the way, remains the Coolidge family house for the rest of their lives. Coolidge returns there after being president. Okay. Yeah. Well, that means he doesn't die in office. That's the thing. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I've given something away. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're living together. They move into the house, and apparently Coolidge brought with him a huge, large sack of socks. That he had worn out throughout the years. Oh no. Darn these. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Grace counted oh. 52 pairs and then asked if he had married her just so someone could darn his socks. And apparently he had replied, no, but I find it mighty handy. <laughs> Oh, the silver-tongued devil. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't all just darning socks in the Coolidge household, because soon afterwards, two sons are born. Little John in 1906 and Calvin Jr. in 1908. Calvin Jr., uh, the younger boy, reminded uh, his father very strongly of himself as a boy, uh, in, in looks uh, and in temperament, and also reminded Coolidge of his mother as well, apparently. Oh. So he seemed to favour his younger boy, but he definitely loved both of his children. Mm. but in a very sort of Victorian male kind of way. <laughs> Coolidge was apparently a very strict father who fully believed the best way to be a father was to set an example of moral fortitude. Right. Yes. That sounds fun. Oh, yes, it does sound fun, doesn't it? So with this expanded family, Coolidge uh, started really watching the pennies coming in. Uh, I mean, they weren't destitute by all means, uh, but they did have to be sensible with their money. Uh, for example, the Coolidge's did not own a telephone or a car, even though, these, even though these things were starting to become cheap enough that they were no longer just for the rich elite. Yeah. Now, by this time, through connections he had made, uh, he had gained a seat on the Massachusetts Senate. So, state senate. Uh, his family stayed in Northampton, and he rented a room in Boston to do his work. Quite often didn't see his children or Grace for, for days at a time, if not weeks. Okay. He, was, he was busy working. Now, he was known to be on the progressive side of the Republican Party, voting for women's rights, uh, voting for the mm. direct election of senators. However, when the party began to split due to Taft and Roosevelt's falling out that we've covered, uh, Coolidge wasn't prepared to abandon his party to join the progressives, so remained loyal to the Republicans. Right. Rather than alienating himself, however, his silence aided him, because no one really knew why it was that that he stuck with the Republicans. Uh, he wasn't seen as a traitor by the progressives. Uh, he was seen as a moderate by both sides because everyone else could just sort of fill in the gaps in his personality with whatever they wanted, <laughs> yeah. really. So of his really, life. Yeah, he never really voiced an opinion on anything, so everyone just assumed that he agreed with them. <gasps> yeah. Uh, in 1913, he was elected as president of the state senate, so he's... he's keeps going up the the ladder yeah. step by step. He made a name for himself at this time when he delivered a speech that became known as the Have Faith in Massachusetts speech. Essentially, this was him supporting progressive agendas but telling everyone to maybe be a bit conservative with their ideas. 
<laughs> oh. It is a perfect example on how Coolidge got on in politics when he was forced to actually say something. I'll quote a small amount of it to you, but it's, it's impressive stuff. Mm-hmm. Do the day's work, so work hard. Yeah. If it is to protect the rights of the weak, whoever objects, do it. So support workers' rights. Mm. If it is to help a powerful corporation better to serve the people, whatever the opposition, do that. So support the companies who are putting down the strikes. Don't hesitate to be as revolutionary as science. So be revolutionary in your thinking. Don't expect to build up the weak by pulling down the strong. Don't actually do like a revolution. (laughs) Don't hurry to legislate. Give the administration a chance to catch up with legislation. Mm-hmm. Now, rather than being accused of delivering a speech that literally meant nothing at all, yeah. <laughs> uh, this won him a lot of acclaim. Really? I mean, seriously, I, I was reading that. It's like he is literally ping-ponging from one sentence yeah. to the next, from one extreme to the other, in an attempt to just placate everyone. You can and imagine, apparently it works. But you can imagine the audience in two halves, like you say one thing, and they go, yay! Yeah. And then he says the next thing, and the other side goes, yay! So I, I stopped to try and think, well, why, why the hell did this go down as a good speech then? And, well, if you think about it, it does make sense. The world's becoming more and more chaotic. The, the First World War's coming up. Uh, everything's mm. very fractured in America. We've had decades of the Gilded Age. Uh, yep. But now progressive policies are starting to come in and fight against that. It's a lot of chaos. Everything seems uncertain. So it would have just been nice to hear someone very calmly agreeing with your views even if you did have to mentally airbrush out half of what he was saying, you could just pretend he hadn't said that part. Do you remember the bit where he said that you should fight for workers' rights? Good old Coolidge. Or do you remember the bit where he said that powerful corporations serve the people? Good old Coolidge. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's wonderful. Wonderful politics, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. So, Coolidge continues his steady rise through politics and was elected Lieutenant Governor, a job with no responsibility whatsoever. Uh, It suited him well. Hmm. Uh, For three one-year terms, he held the post, just biding his time, essentially. Nice. Uh, And then, in 1918, the Governor of Massachusetts stepped aside and Calvin went for the job. Now, Massachusetts at this time was strongly Republican, And with endorsement from the party, this should have been an easy win for Coolidge. There's no way he should have lost this. However, (laughs) times were a-changing, as a man who will be born surprisingly soon sang about. The Democrats were changing as a party. The villages and towns and even the small cities were still firmly Republican. But large industrial Boston was full of factory workers who were starting to see the Democrats as the only party looking out for their rights. Mm. Uh, Coolidge was also going up against a man named Long. Uh, And Long was able to point to Coolidge's past and point out a couple of things. This man has done nothing but politics all his life. He graduated, he made some friends with some rich businessmen slash politicians, and since then has just gone from post to post whilst doing what exactly? What did he stand for? Why was Coolidge so successful? Was it maybe because he was in the pockets of big business? What exactly has he done for the average working man, exactly? Uh, This was a good attack line. It it resonated with a lot, especially in Boston. It was a disturbingly close race, but like I say, 
a very Republican state. Coolidge did win, oh. but it was a much smaller margin than he would have liked. Yeah. And here we get another dubious anecdote, uh, which I really hope this one's true, because <laughs> this one's perhaps my favourite. After winning the race, an old friend of the family came round. He happened to be a newspaper reporter. His name was Bill, and he'd come round to congratulate Coolidge and be the first reporter to get his side of the story. So he was invited in by a relative of Coolidge, who, who happened to be staying, uh, and shown into Coolidge's study. They talked for a bit, and then the relative said to Coolidge, uh, and I'll quote, Cal, are you not going to give Bill a drink? Apparently, Coolidge silently stood up and pulled out a bunch of keys from his pocket. He then cycled through the keys and then stopped on two keys. He walked to a cabinet in the corner of the room and unlocked the cabinet with one key. He then pulled a trunk out of the closet, placed it on a table and unlocked the trunk. From there, he lifted a bottle, pulled out the cork, and poured a small measure into a glass. He placed the glass down, he placed the bottle back in the trunk, he locked the trunk, placed the trunk in the cabinet, and then locked the cabinet. He then turned round and gave Bill his drink. Then, not long after that, uh, the relative appeared at the door again. A second guest had arrived. Another well-wisher. This man was called Jim. Hmm. Uh, Jim and Bill, and also Calvin, chatted for a while. The relative happened to come back into the room and mentioned that Coolidge had forgotten Jim's drink. Cal stood up, pulled out his bunch of keys, (laughs) cycled through the keys, put one of the keys in the cabinet, opened the cabinet, pulled out the trunk, unlocked the trunk, pulled out the bottle, poured a small measure put the bottle in the trunk, locked the trunk, put the trunk in the cabinet, and then locked the cabinet, turned round and gave Jim his small drink. As he passed the drink to Jim, he simply stated, Bill's had his. <laughs> wow. It's like you with your whiskey, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really hope that one's true. Yeah. <laughs> but again, the whole setup is so... It, it, it's just got the... The canter of a joke. And a, yes, yes, a exactly. That's exactly what it it, it... it just seems too much like a joke. It's like, is this really real? Did this happen? But I hope it did. I hope so. Uh, Massachusetts didn't have a governor's mansion, like many states did. Uh, So uh, Coolidge did what was sensible. Remember, he was renting a room in a hotel when he worked in in Boston. Uh, So he just rented out a second room in the hotel he was in. That will do, he thought. So he could walk to work then? Yeah. 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 Sensible. That's essentially what the White House is, right? Yeah, exactly. And Coolidge ran the state as as its governor, how you'd expect him to, really. Moderation was the key word. By this time, Coolidge had firmly held political beliefs. He believed that all Americans had the right to be free. Mm. That meant freedom to work and choose where you work. If you did not like your job, you should have the freedom to choose another job. Uh, It meant you had the right to run your businesses without interference. Government should be small and people should not be messed about with. And Coolidge fully believed that businesses were ran by people and therefore businesses were people. If the law applied to people, it applied to businesses. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's quite a progressive tonality isn't it really it's uh, i wouldn't describe it as progressive but it, it's definitely we're seeing the early signs of the republican party becoming the party that it becomes right. the republican party is is definitely no longer the party of lincoln and is turning more into the party of reagan so so they're trying to deregulate is he in favor of that 
for more business freedoms. Yeah, yeah. Deregulation, business freedoms. If businesses were doing well, then everyone would benefit, was essentially his belief. Uh, The wealth of the businesses would trickle down to the poor. Obviously, there's no way that wouldn't happen. Uh, We'll ignore countless economic studies that proved otherwise, but to be fair to Coolidge, they hadn't actually happened yet. This is this is right. Yeah. This is this is right at the start of this idea of let's just make businesses do well and make them responsible Mm -hmm. and the responsible businesses will benefit everyone. Yeah, because it's morally the right thing to, to, to do. Yeah, exactly. All you need to do is get rid of the bad businesses and yeah. society will prosper. Yeah. Uh, Coolidge continued as governor using this philosophy for a while. Uh, the World War was over. Oh, there's been a war- World War, by the way. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Again, doesn't really affect Coolidge in the same way it didn't really affect Carding, so I didn't need to go into it at all. Uh, but the world was over. Uh, Wilson was president, and he was touring the country, attempting to encourage people to support the entry into the League of Nations. Uh, Coolidge came out and very firmly made a stance of just not letting anyone know his views. <laughs> Yeah. Which which was handy. He did, yeah. however, veto an attempt to work around the 18th Amendment at this time. The 18th Amendment being the banning of selling of alcohol. So, uh, yeah, Massachusetts were trying their hardest to work around that because, <laughs> oh, they did not like that. Yeah, yeah something passed the state Senate, but, yeah, Cornish just went, no, we can't do this. It's, it's, it's the 18th Amendment. We, 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 we've got to stop it. Incidentally, still serving alcohol in his own place. Doesn't say, yeah, with his chest yeah. in, in the box. Yeah, and... but it's not selling, so it's fine. Yeah. The the rich of the country still had stockpiles of the stuff. They yeah. were fine. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to do a study into uh, when the 18th Amendment was repealed and the depletion rates of the stocks of alcohol that the rich in the country had. Yeah. <laughs> and whether there was a, <laughs> a correlation there. Yeah, down to my last third bottle of bottle of bourbon i need to we need to repeal this mother right now <laughs> so yeah uh, again there's not much to report on from his time as being governor uh, he was a workaholic uh, according to one historian um that was based on the fact that he missed his son's birthdays at this time yeah. um yeah the main thing of course he was governor during the summer of 1919 now we've covered this a couple of times although not in a huge amount of detail uh, but this was a tense time for the country this is the first red scare that's fully up and running uh, if you remember the red summer was going on with the race riots in the streets yeah Yeah, the government largely were blaming these race riots on communists if they could be bothered to try and hide their racism, otherwise they just simply blamed it on the black population. Yeah. 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 Uh, Strikes, of course, were the other big thing. They were becoming bigger and more fraught. And uh, in in this chaos that's going up and down the country, uh, Boston certainly was not immune. If anything, Boston was, was more susceptible than anywhere else i mean highly industrial city a history of not bowing down to political pressure boston's always been a bit what's the word rogue (laughs) bit rogue yeah uh for better or for worse uh depending on your side and various things that have happened in history but boston's not the kind of city that are just going to lay down and let people tell them what to do I mean, aside from the revolution at the start of the podcast, yeah. we've also got... Uh, this is the city that were literally uh, had 
their courts chained up, if you remember. So, yeah, Boston definitely a melting pot of frustration, shall we say. And one of the biggest areas of disillusionment was the police force itself. The Boston police force, uh, like several police forces in the country, uh, at this time were made up almost entirely of Irish Catholics. It had become very factionalised. Yeah, it would. Many of the police force had fought in the war and had returned. Now, the elite in Boston largely were made up of Protestants, not Irish Catholics. And there was tension there. Yeah. The police force felt that they were underpaid. Uh, The city was full of tension and danger, and the politicians didn't care about them, uh, who risked their lives on a daily basis. The working conditions were terrible, the pay was poor, and we're literally risking our lives trying to protect the politicians. Why are we doing this? Was the thought amongst the the police force. In particular, because a lot of them had just returned from the war. They had been proclaimed as heroes, they had marched through parades, and people had cheered them, and all sorts. But that lasted, what, a day? If that... And now, just because they wanted a pay rise, they were being accused of being secret communists. Yeah, yeah. resentment started to grow. Where, where would... So the force attempted to organise a union. They were refused permission to do so by the police commissioner. So they formed a union anyway. Ooh, okay. Uh, the officers who were instrumental in organising this union were fired. Yeah, as you can see, tensions are starting to rise. I was say, it's just like this balloon getting constantly blown up and blown up and blown up, and eventually it's going to go... Yeah, tensions rose. Uh, the mayor of Boston, uh, although opposing the illegal union, voiced sympathy for the officers. So you got the mayor who was cautiously uh, getting on side with the police force. You got yeah. the police commissioner who was fighting against them. Uh, so Coolidge, as governor, was sought to step in. You've got the mayor and the police commissioner starting to go at it, and you've got the police force threatening to strike. It's time you, you step in and take the bull by the horns. Yeah. Yeah, Coolidge didn't, Coolidge didn't do that. No. No, no, he, no. he did nothing, nothing whatsoever. Of course not. It no. was the police commissioner's job, he said. He wasn't going to get involved. No. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the tensions continued. Uh, the police force then went on strike because the commissioner had fired several of uh, the their leaders. Over one and a half thousand officers did not show up to work that day. Ooh. Word soon got around the city, and the looting started. Way. <laughs> yeah, it's party time in Boston, said many. <laughs> the police commissioner had assured Coolidge the state militia wasn't needed. Of course he had a handle on this, he's the police commissioner. Uh, and Coolidge had fully accepted this, so he had gone to bed that night. <laughs> so he had a nice night's sleep, he slept through all the rioting. Yeah, oh good, good. Yeah, so that's nice, isn't it? Nice and fresh for the clean-up in the morning. Nice and fresh to face the press the next day, in fact. Uh-huh. Because the press lay the blame firmly in one place. Coolidge. Oh no, the police force. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Other unions in the city, outraged that the police force were being uh, targeted rather than the politicians, went on strike in support of the police. Firemen went on strike, streetcar workers, telegraph operators. Oh no. Yeah, the city starts grinding to a halt completely. It will. The mayor asked for the Boston branch of the state militia. This isn't the full state militia, but the bit that he's in charge of and he yeah. can call up. That essentially, however, meant Harvard. 
Right. It, it meant students in Harvard who fancied playing the oh, soldier. No. Yeah, several hundred Harvard students attempted to control the street the next night. Uh, you'll be shocked to learn when going up against angry workmen, uh, they, they didn't stand much of a chance. No, they were doomed from the off. No, uh, three men died that night, and rioting just continued in the streets. Eventually, Coolidge realised that perhaps he needed to actually do something here. <laughs> he could no longer just say, not my job, yeah. it's the police commissioner's and the mayor's job. So he called up the entire state militia, who were able to put the riots down, but no one was happy. The police commissioner, very angry by this point, decided to fire those responsible. And who was responsible? The unions. The police force. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, what? Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. He's now fired the... um... If you went on strike, you were fired. A majority of the police force had gone on strike. I'm seeing a flaw in this plan. <laughs> yes, there is a flaw in that plan. He then desperately starts to attempt to find replacements to fill in the gaps. We need more students. <laughs> Coolidge supported this. In fact, I quote him, There is no right to strike against public safety by anybody at any time. Of course, Coolidge supported the right for people to be free to strike but not against the freedom that people had for public safety freedom freedom keep saying the word freedom people will agree with me (laughs) yeah a while later he went even further than this Dick Coolidge announced that anyone willing to strike from the police force was inherently unfit for the job I quote him to trust public safety to men who would have attempted to destroy it would be irresponsible Uh, These comments made Coolidge a national figure. Riots across the country, remember. This is Red Scare. Everyone's worried about communists taking over. The race riots are going on as well. The country is a mess. And here is a very calm man talking about how we can restore order and be sensible. People started to take note. Yeah, it's it's good. He's he's not being brash. It's just sort of more chilled out. No, we'll get it sorted. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. It was a good, calming voice. He wasn't stoking any fires. People naturally started to be drawn to him. As long as you didn't look too closely into how he hadn't actually done anything to help solve the situation. In fact, arguably, he'd made it worse by his inactions. (laughs) As long as you didn't actually look into that and just focused on what he was saying, it was reassuring. Mm. So people started... Flocking towards him. Due to this publicity, as the 1920 Republican convention arrived, there were some in the party starting to say Coolidge's name in those smoky back rooms and deciding who was going to be president next. Not many, to be fair, Uh, but he was a name being talked about. In fact, the main man talking about Coolidge was a man named Barton. Barton's an interesting man. Barton is an ex-Armhurst student or so, and founding member of the advertising and marketing company BBDO, uh, which, I'll be honest, meant nothing to me, but apparently it's a big marketing and uh, advertising company that started this time, is still around today. I imagine some of our American listeners will know who exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but. Um. That, yeah, no, that one hasn't reached us here in England, but no. big deal is uh, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, unless I've completely misread the situation and all our listeners are just going, mm-hmm, as well. <laughs> Who knows? It's one of those cultural things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to hedge my bets. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> like Santa Claus. <laughs> who? Um, yeah, uh, Barton was a man who understood the powers of capitalism <laughs> and felt that the Gilded Age had not really reached its potential. He wrote. He's a... making it more efficient. Oh, yes, definitely. He wrote a book called The Man Nobody Knows. I suggest everyone tries to read a little bit of this book because, wow, it is fascinating. Uh, in it, Barton puts forth the idea that Jesus was not some wishy-washy weak man who banged on about morals. <laughs> oh, no. Jesus was the first CEO. Uh, he was the founder of modern business. In fact, that was one of the chapter titles. Jesus was a strong-willed man who worked with his hands. He had picked out 12 men from the bottom of business and had risen with them through the ranks to create a world-conquering organisation. There's a certain logic to what he's saying, I guess. There is. I mean, we spent a few hours, I'd say, on the rise of Christianity in our Roman podcast. I'll admit I never saw it that way. No. No, (laughs) I I never did. (laughs) I think it takes a certain type of person to see it in that way. Yeah. Seems. A particular favourite line in this, in this amazing book, uh, I quote to you. In fact, before I quote, this is in the introduction, which is written entirely in third person, about a man who heard stories of Jesus, about how weak he was, and realised that can't be true. And then that man looked into it in more detail, and realised all the amazing business ideas this Jesus fellow had. And this man waited for a book to be written about the truth on Jesus, but it never came. And eventually that man decided to write the book himself. And here is that book. That's how this book starts. Wow. Oh, yeah. Anyway, my favourite line from that introduction. Talking about Jesus here. His muscles were so strong that when he drove the money chargers out, no one dared to oppose him. This obviously is the story of Jesus driving the money chargers out the temple. Yeah, yeah. Literally, Burton is using... Burton? Barton? Burton. Literally... Barton is using this part of the Bible that is almost always used to criticise the accumulation of wealth to point out how ripped Jesus must have been. (laughs) Like a WWE wrestler. Yeah. We are full-on gung-ho, macho Jesus, who is the the executive of a business. Uh, the, The book was a way, quite simply, to excuse the obvious discrepancies between Christianity and the rise of the robber barons oh, of in America. It's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. The morality of Christianity doesn't quite gel with this incredibly hyper-capitalist, money-grabbing society yeah. we've developed, so how can we gel them together? Barton wrote this book to attempt to do that. Uh, it was the best-selling book in the United States for two years. Wow. Oh, yeah. And disturbingly, it really sounds like it could have been published today. Yeah. You read it, and it does not read like a hundred-year-old book at yeah. all. It really doesn't. It was in some ways very forward-thinking, disturbingly so. What's it called? <laughs> it is called The Man Nobody Knows, because no one knew Jesus like Barton has figured out Jesus. No one knew him. I, w- I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this uh, with this guy. He he sounds fascinating in a disturbing way. <gasps> There's a free on audiobook. <laughs> oh, excellent. Anyway, so Barton was a big fan of Coolidge. Read into that what you will. Yeah. Because it's not entirely clear why perhaps uh, the accusations that Coolidge just being in the pockets of big business perhaps ring true. Yeah. Because Barton then starts to work as a consultant for the governor of Massachusetts. Barton used his connections to have several very flattering pieces written about Coolidge. 
Coolidge represented the silent majority. He was the voice of common sense. Uh, Silent Kel became a well-known figure with that nickname. The silence being shown as a sign of strength, a stony wall of competence, perhaps, that the revolutionaries would break if they tried to go up against. Yeah, Barton was good at his job, and his job was selling. And he sold the image of this slightly reclusive career politician as being some kind of solution for all the nation's ills. Ah, oh, it's it's quite masterful, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. It works incredibly well. Uh, one of the more famous stories comes from Barton's writings. Uh, it's yet another one of these anecdotes that we get about Coolidge. Uh, Coolidge and Barton were sat on his porch one evening when a man rode past on a wagon and just called out a greeting to Coolidge. Howdy, Newt, said Coolidge. And after the wagon had gone by, Burton asked who the man was. Apparently Coolidge replied, Oh, it's a cousin of mine. I haven't seen him in 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, Barton used this story to display Coolidge as unflappable. Again, who knows how true this is? And this is what I meant by the start of the uh, the episode. We get all these anecdotes, but a lot of it is propaganda slash mocking. And how true they are is yeah. hard to tell. It's interesting as well, because I, I know that... Well, is, is, isn't Coolidge president at the, at the beginning of the crash? Mm, we'll get into that. That's next episode, Jeremy. It's next episode. But not quite. Not quite. But yes. Because he exacerbated or something. Yeah, yeah. He let it go wild and then... Again, we'll, we'll get into All right, it. okay. Next episode. That is definitely a next episode conversation. Right. For now, Barton is trying to teach his pupil uh, the world of advertisement and marketing, and he finds a very willing pupil. Hmm. Uh, Coolidge starts to do things like suggest that he start talking whilst people are taking photos of him to make him look more natural. The, the whole idea of a photo op starts to be born. He's actually staging his photographs. Uh, These photos appear next to advertisements created by Barton targeted at specific groups such as women or teachers or congressmen. Yeah, really targeted. Uh, A book of Coolidge's speeches was then released called Law and Order. Because if you say the words law and order, <laughs> lots of people start nodding and going, yes, I agree with law and order, I'll vote for you. Especially uh, council Yeah, exactly. This this is uh, stuff that has become almost cliched now because it's been done by politicians for so long, but this is the start of it. Still, that convention that was approaching is uh, now approaching very quickly, and even with Barton fighting in his corner, Coolidge was very much a minor player. His only hope was to be the Dark Horse compromise, as the two most popular candidates, Wood and Loudon, came to a standstill. But as we saw in our last episode, there was another man in a better place to be that Dark Horse, and when the fight between Loudon and Wood came to nothing, a certain Warren Harding was there to step in. Coolidge received the news. He didn't take it well. Apparently he put on his hat and went for a walk. He must have been livid then. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> I mean, again, read into that what you will. Put on your hat and go for a walk could mean that it's a Tuesday. Who yeah. knows? But apparently that's what happened. However, whilst he was going for his walk, feeling very disappointed, back in the convention, uh, the voting had turned to the position of vice president. 
Now, the position for vice president was going to Irvine and Root. Everyone knew that. Yeah. So much so that most delegates had headed home after the presidential nomination. No yeah. point staying for the rest. I don't know if you remember, but that round of voting had lasted for an entire week. Uh, it, at, by the end of it, everyone just wanted to leave. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so most people started to leave. Those that did remain, however, were not very happy. They weren't happy with the fact that the party bosses had made a decision on Harding becoming the president, essentially in a smoky back room somewhere. Mm. And now they just assumed that they could dictate the vice president nominee. So someone just plucked Coolidge's name out of the air. He'd been making a bit of a name for himself recently. You know what? I don't want Len Root. The party bosses say Len Root, I say Coolidge. Ooh. Coolidge's few supporters, who happen to still be there, jumped on this. Brilliant. They pull out their law and order banners once more and they start <laughs> campaigning. And it works this time. Coolidge gets the nomination. Uh, Coolidge is home from his walk by this point, and the phone rings. Uh, Grace watched her husband talk for a while, and then he hangs up. <laughs> well, she asks. <laughs> I've been nominated for vice president, he said. Well, you're not going to take it, are you? said Grace. There was a sigh, and Coolidge said, I suppose I shall have to. <laughs> No one wants to be vice president. No, yeah. Anyway, the campaign starts up. Harding, if you remember, campaigned from his front porch. He was doing a McKinley-style campaign. Mm. He's going to sit on his porch. People can come to him. But that kind of meant the vice president had to go out touring. Uh, Coolidge didn't like this, as you can imagine, but it was part of his role, so he got on with the job. And as we saw, the Democrats were wiped out. The Republicans won in a landslide. Uh, Coolidge was well pleased. Mm. He stated, The radicalism which has tinged our whole political and economic life from soon after 1900 to the World War has passed. Nice. Which is a, a very big statement. It is, yeah. Everything's it is. fine from now on. But it does give you a sense that everyone thought the world was falling apart at the time. Yeah. Everything was chaos. And Coolidge fully believed <laughs> that as soon as the Republicans were back in with Harding as president and him as vice president, everything would finally be sorted. What, what year was this? The election was 1920. Yeah, that's about right. 100 yeah. years post and we're the same position. Oh, yes, nothing has changed. So there is some hope. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Cornish settles into his role as vice president. Uh, he soon had a visitor. It was the new governor of Massachusetts, a man hmm. named Cox. Yeah. He'd He'd come to uh, congratulate his predecessor, but he had a question. Uh, Cox had looked into what Coolidge had been up to now that he was the governor, and he'd seen how many meetings Coolidge had managed to get through every single day. And Coolidge was known for leaving the office at five o'clock every day. How had that happened? Cox was often in the office up until 9pm. In fact, I'll quote, Why is there a difference? Cox asked Coolidge. Coolidge simply replied, you talk back. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Calvert and Grace moved into the Willard Hotel in Washington. Uh, Coolidge then travelled to the office and back. Uh, but about that, it does very little. It's very hard to figure out what he did as vice president. There was nothing for him to do. Harding actually had given him a place in the cabinet... Yeah. So, in theory, the vice president had more power than most vice presidents had throughout history. Yeah. Uh, but it turned out that this was just a, just a gesture. Oh, uh, right. He wasn't actually welcome in the cabinet. He wasn't involved. 
Um, he did go to dinner parties, but apparently he didn't particularly enjoy them too much. <laughs> of course not. Grace enjoyed herself and fit in very well, but Coolidge didn't enjoy it. Uh, he was asked at one point why he went to them if they bored him so much, and he just replied, a man must eat. <laughs> Uh, and then one night, uh, a fire alarm went off in the hotel that he and Grace were staying in. The guests all headed down to the lobby, and uh, the small fire that had started was put under control by the firemen, which is nice. However, the guests were then asked to remain where they were whilst various things were sorted out. So they waited. And they waited. And eventually Coolidge became annoyed and just decided to head back to his room. He headed up the stairs and a fire marshal stopped him. "'Who are you?' asked the fire marshal. "'I'm the vice-president,' Coolidge replied. "'Oh, all right, go ahead,' said the fire marshal. "'However, after a couple of steps up the stairs, "'the fire marshal called after him. "'The vice-president of what, exactly?' <laughs> "'Coolidge replied, "'I'm the vice-president of the United States.' "'The fire marshal then asked him to come back down into the lobby. Oh, "'I thought you were vice-president of the hotel.' <laughs> I like that story. Yeah. <laughs> it works on quite a few levels. It's nice. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, with little else to do, Coolidge worked on speeches, uh, speeches that he and Barton could use to further his career. These speeches were becoming more and more conservative in their thinking and encouraged the Red Scare attitude. Hmm. He released a series of articles called The Enemies of the Republic, warning that communist students were going to bring down the country. Yeah. Yeah, so Barton's clearly realised the way to get popular and is uh, encouraging Coolidge to lean in a certain direction. And Coolidge is more than willing to do it. Uh, In fact, some historians speculate that Barton actually wrote these articles and Coolidge just put his name to them. Now, despite this, uh, Coolidge was most well known for not being known. One example of this was the uh, story that went round that he would regularly receive complimentary tickets to events with made-up middle initials, because no one knew what his middle name was. That's fantastic. Yeah. Jokes were made about him frequently, many of which, as I've said, are probably where we get many of the anecdotes that have come down to us. Uh, And in the background, or... Yeah. More to point, in the foreground, Harding's presidency continues on. Now, if you remember, Harding's presidency was a hotbed of corruption that Harding spent his entire presidency trying to keep a lid on. Coolidge, it would appear, was not part of any of this. Mm. He just simply didn't work in the same circles. Everyone else was on the take, but Coolidge just... His finger was so far removed from the pulse, he just wasn't involved. And then, in August of 1923, Coolidge was visiting his father in Plymouth Notch, and in the middle of the night, a man knocked on the door of John Calvin's cottage. Seventy-year-eight old John Calvin answered. There'd been a phone call on the village phone. The the president was dead. (laughs) They needed to inform the vice president that he was now the president. John climbed the stairs and woke up his son and told him the news. According to Coolidge later in life, a story he recounted whilst having his official portrait painted, he he got dressed utterly stunned and then headed downstairs, and the only thing he could remember thinking was, I believe I can swing this. And there we go. (laughs) That is Coolidge's life up until him becoming president. Interesting. Do you know what? I'm getting a bit of a soft spot for him. It's the irony of Coolidge that he is so boring it actually becomes fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I, that's the only, it, it, to me it doesn't come across as boring, it's just awkward and 
antisocials probably not the best word for it but yeah he's he's, awkward introvert yeah exactly he's he's different we've not seen his type before no because everyone's quite bombastic and yeah i'm the president kind of thing i don't think you could get further from a teddy roosevelt or or a Mm. jackson or a lincoln uh he's he's just plodding along yeah. You do get the feeling, though, if he hadn't have met Barton with his advertising genius, that he would have just plodded along. But due to a series of uh, accidents and happy chances, <laughs> happenstances, uh, yeah, he finds himself president. Mm. Just before the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you think his presidency is going to go? Um, I don't think it's going to go great. So I think there are powers and people working by the scenes that aren't going to be great for, for everything. Remember, he com- he becomes president only about a year before the next election. Uh, well, he, he must get voted in again, surely. He gets for a second term. Ooh. I think he does. I think he gets voted in for a second term. Yeah. And then things go wrong? Yes. Okay. Well, we will see next time. We will. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, don't forget to download some Podbean and iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And all that needs to be said. It's goodbye. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> goodbye. Mm. Goodbye. So just popped round to say congratulations, really. James and I uh, popped round to, to say, well done, Vice President, amazing news. Yes, we're actually thrilled, Calvin. It's wonderful news. Are, are you pleased, Calvin? Are, are you happy? So t- t- James was just saying... T- tell him, James, tell him what you were saying on the way over. Well, I'm just saying that you'd be an absolute fresh air compared to all these other politicians, you know. You're pretty yes. calm, pretty chilled out, pretty straight, straight-laced. Can you hear us? Cal- Calvin? Hello? Oh, you've blinked, thank God. Right, yes, um... Yeah, Coolidge. That's how that's we're doing. You seem nice. excited by Coolidge. But a lot of people have said, oh, you really like Coolidge. Okay. Have they? Yeah. I, I don't really remember that. I'll put people on, uh, online on comments and things on Facebook. Interesting. As in you personally? Or... Yeah, they mention me, my name, and then Coolidge. <laughs> I wonder what they meant. <laughs> and I think Jerry Landry as well, when he said which presidents we both like, he compared me to Coolidge. Oh, yeah, yeah. As well. Why? Oh, you'll find out. <laughs> See, it's nothing that bad. I just... It's not an association or a link I would have made. I... I yeah. I'd take it as a compliment. Choose to take it as a compliment. <laughs> anyway. Calvin Coolidge. That's his name. Let's do the intro. Yeah. Okay. Calvin Coolidge.